Hello and welcome to the Tucson Bitcoin Podcast. Today is part two of the 2020 in review conversation that I had with these guys on New Year's Eve. Uh, joining me is Freddie Vasquez, Chris Porter, and Stephen Cole. And we're just kind of rolling in and picking up uh, where we left off last Monday. Uh, so yeah, I hope you enjoy this conversation. We again talk a lot about altcoins, talk about avoiding Bitcoin scams, talk about the incentives of why people should use Bitcoin, why they should get other people on Bitcoin, and it was a really fun conversation. Hope you enjoy. Um, the, the one footnote that I'll add there is like, I, I do think that's such a good question about, you know, is there some other less obvious incentive for people to be saying nice to, to try to get me aboard Bitcoin, right? Um, in theory, the more people who buy, yeah, the more like the more the price goes up and the more the price goes up, the more the people who are, have already bought in uh, are worth in some sense, right? Like the value of their Bitcoin rises. So if one of us buys $25 worth of Bitcoin right now, then all else equal, you know, the like Bitcoiners make a little bit of money, so to speak. Um, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to these other projects where they are, you know, worth so much less. The amount of money stored in those projects is worth so much less that it can really be lucrative for, uh, for them to convince people to put money in. And then the creators of that project can cash out and, you know, move on to the next thing. So, uh, so that type of incentive, I would say, is least present in Bitcoin of any of these types of assets. So you hit on one of my favorite words, the incentives. So uh, I think Bitcoin is unique in how it aligns the incentives of people to follow the, follow the code and follow the rules instead of try to break the rules. So like part of the security mechanism of Bitcoin is how miners and proof of work operate. And that Bitcoin every day is actually proving that it's secure because uh, it because it's decentralized, a, a miner could could try and attack the network. And in fact, there are constant attacks every day of miners trying to, you know, add blocks with zero transactions or try to take over the network. And every day they fail because they don't ha either have fifty one percent of hash power or they just didn't win the the reward. So. It, you, you know, Jameson Lop has done a lot of analysis, you know, chain analysis of like what has happened and, and when have um, when have these events happened, whether it was a chain split or, or a fork or um, so I guess the the summary of it is for for any person like their own incentive is, of course, like if I own Bitcoin and I tell you about it and you buy it, like, sure, the number will go up a little bit, but Bitcoin uh, surpasses everything else in the alignment of the incentives that everybody wins with Bitcoin instead of a disproportionate amount of the founders winning and everybody else not winning nearly as much as a small group of people. So, yeah. you guys, you guys, you guys mentioned that, um, but yeah, if, if when people invest into you know Bitcoin, uh, the value goes up, but the value goes up if you ever want to change it back to U.S. dollars, right? And so it's like, it, so if it's, you know, do you, do I get more Bitcoin? Like, does the Bitcoin just, like, it just stays the same, right? But the value, when you go turn it back to US dollars, goes up, right? I, is that, is that, is that, is that, am I understanding? So it, it's, I guess this would just go into economics around like, 
um, if, if you were like, imagine you were a huge bank and you had trillions of dollars and if you owned a whole bunch of Bitcoin, if you started market selling that, um, that would cause uh, slippage where the, you would actually drive the price down by selling a whole bunch, right? Um, and so, uh, and conversely, like if you were a big player, like MicroStrategy was a company that bought like 70,000 Bitcoin, um, and at, they had to do it in a strategic way to buy a small amounts over time um, because there's only a certain amount of Bitcoin available every day that people are willing to sell, you know, that somebody wants to buy a house and they decide to sell it or the miners are creating, you know, 6.25 Bitcoin um, every 10 minutes yeah, approximately. Um, so there's only a certain amount of Bitcoin being generated, you know, or, you know, stock to flow. Um, and so if you try to buy more than what was available on the market, of course, you're going to, yeah, you're going to drive the price up. And then people that weren't willing to sell at one price might be willing to sell at a higher price. Um, I, I think a point that drove this concept home for me that I didn't get for a long time was if somebody, you know, like dies in a plane crash and they had a thousand Bitcoin, um, now that that Bitcoin is taken off the market and will never be able to be uh, unlocked, that actually increases the value, that increases the scarcity and the value of Bitcoin. Um, and so the, the fact that, that there have been people that have died or that, that um, you know, Satoshi isn't in the picture. Um, I, I remember Mark Cuban was asking questions around like, well, what if Satoshi came back into the picture? How would that affect the price? And that, that's an interesting thought experiment. I've never thought about that. But anyway, you know, he's not right now. He's been gone for a while. So we'll see. But Well, if Satoshi came back, I'm sure he would buy a lot of bananas from Mark. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, kind of going that's off that. A joke. <laughs> so Hawkman Beard in the chat, uh, he says, hey, Stephen, glad to have you in my knowledge corner for Bitcoin. And then he also asked, is it possible for large corporations like Amazon for example, to buy a ton of Bitcoin and control the price of it? I think that's a good question. It's an excellent question. Yeah. Um, I would say, uh, well, uh, no, it's possible for them to influence the price of Bitcoin a lot uh, because they control a lot of the world's value, like they're a rich company. So there are a couple ways that they could do that, right? Like when people think about Amazon adopting Bitcoin, I think one use case that jumps to mind is Amazon accepting Bitcoin as payment. And, you know, I remember when I thought that would be like the coolest thing in the world for Bitcoin. Um, and, and it would be cool. I think that would make a lot of great headlines. It would make Bitcoin a little bit more useful for payments. So yes, I expect that would do nice things to the Bitcoin price. But would, what would really do nice things for the Bitcoin price is if Amazon, you know, even more so than accepting it as payment, just bought and held Bitcoin in their corporate treasury. Um, I, I think that really is the flagship use case for Bitcoin right now, whether you are a, an average Joe or whether you are a big Fortune 500 company is buying it and holding it and using it to store value. And, and Chris, you mentioned MicroStrategy earlier, and they got a lot of positive press in the last uh, four months or so because they're um, the, the largest publicly traded U.S. company to make big moves in that way so far. So they got, made a lot of buzz earlier this year, a few months back, when they decided to take all of their cash in the company's balance sheet and convert it into Bitcoin. Um, 
And if you read the memo from their CEO, Michael Saylor, it wasn't like, hey, we're like, this is some bet on this new emerging technology. We think it's really neat. So we're like, you know, gonna make a risky play and hopefully it works out. It was like, the US dollar is losing value and we have a lot of dollars and we have a responsibility to our shareholders to protect the value of our company. So because the dollar is losing value, we are going to hold Bitcoin instead. He like very clearly got that. And that was amazing to see happen at that level. And so they are a $1.2 billion company or they were at the time that they did that initial buy. So they bought about $425 million worth of Bitcoin. And then the Bitcoin price went up a lot. Uh, so it's already kind of a good move in that sense. Uh, but then they doubled down. They issued debt to buy another $600 million or so worth of Bitcoin. So they now have over $1.3 billion worth of Bitcoin that the company is holding on to. And that uh, has done nice things for the price. And I think that once other companies and entities in the world with a lot of money realize how lucrative it is to do that, then, then yeah, the price will be influenced by it in good ways. Um, so Amazon doesn't own any Bitcoin right now. So the worst thing they could really do for the Bitcoin price is like not continue to not use it and maybe say bad things about it. <laughs> but if they decide to buy Bitcoin, then they're much more rich than MicroStrategy. And if Apple decides to buy and Google and Facebook decide to buy, uh, these are trillion dollar companies that can move a lot more money and convince people to buy a lot more corporate debt and so there could really be trillions that flow into Bitcoin. And uh, so, so I would say Amazon can't control Bitcoin, but man, they can make the number go up. <laughs> and just kind of one more, I'm, I'm thinking back to all my economics classes, or at least the two that I had um, around like what can influence the Bitcoin price. And so because of Bitcoin is so decentralized and because we've got all these holders, um, instead of uh, stocks where there's mutual funds, there's, you know, all these big players that, that are, um, you know, involved in it, um, because it's a whole bunch, you know, there's, there's just a, a very diverse group of people that are holding Bitcoin. Um, I would say that it's, it is harder to get them to all sell at the same time. So the, the, the term that I'm thinking of, I, I may be wrong, and you, you know that it, that it's inelastic. That it's not going to, um, if there is a demand for Bitcoin, then the price is going to increase quite a bit because there's lack of supply of Bitcoin. There's not a lot of people that have huge reserves, like a mutual fund that would be like, "Ooh, we made the, our two percent that we wanted to today. We're going to sell off a little bit, and then we'll buy back more." And then we'll, you know, they're, they're playing all these games. And so stocks are very elastic where, where you could buy a whole bunch and they might not move because there's plenty of people buying and selling it. Whereas Bitcoin, um, it's less elastic because there's fewer people willing to sell their Bitcoin. Uh, and and I'm, I'm guessing this, I don't have, I'm just kind of sharing my thoughts around it. I haven't done an analysis of this, but um, that I, I believe that Bitcoin is less elastic. And so if somebody were to buy it, it would cause the, the price to, to increase drastically. If they held a whole bunch and they sold it, yeah, that's that's what would cause the dip. Um, but I honestly think the news of what company hold, are already holding a whole bunch and then choosing to sell it, that would also probably ca cause the price to increase. So number only goes up. <laughs> <laughs> that's the yeah. takeaway there. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I, I think like what 
what this question kind of leads to is this idea um, that a lot of people are seriously concerned with, um, which is wealth inequality. And a lot of people point to Bitcoin. They say that, you know, the Bitcoin uh, is held by uh, a few people and, you know, companies like Amazon that have a lot of cash that can get into it and buy a lot more than, you know, people like me or, or anybody else. Um, you know, creates a world of inequality. But, you know, when it comes down to like the economic, uh, um, uh, when it comes down to like Bitcoin's economic policy, it's something that really addresses wealth inequality. So, you know, to, to really, I think that that question's kind of uh, built on some uh, false assumptions of, of this idea that, um, you know, the, the money that we, uh, are currently using isn't the thing that's leading to extreme wealth inequality. I mean, we we have people that are benefiting for producing no value, you know, just because they're closer to the money printer, and that's not how Bitcoin works um, in the slightest. I mean, to to be a Bitcoin miner and to um, unlock these uh, block rewards, you know, you have to be dedicating a lot of work and energy towards it. And that's completely different than just having a banking charter and being able to issue credit and get these, uh, you know, loans from the Fed for like 0% interest or whatever it is, and then go turn around and, and give a loan at, at 4%. So I think like, you know, as far as um, the wealth inequality, at, you know, question that comes into this, it, it, it really is a solution. And, and I don't think it's a bad thing kind of going off of what Steven said for these companies to get into it, because it means that they're transitioning to a system that is much more beneficial for all of us. You know, we all play by the same rules here. It's not like, um, you know, I'm best friends with J-PAL, so I get, you know, access to money before any of you do, you know, and that and that's what's different. Um, I'm not sure if this is a troll comment, but Michael Rexto, uh, asked, Hey guys, should we buy Ethereum? <laughs> we'll give the benefit of the doubt and hope it's a troll comment. <laughs> rewind and listen to the beginning of, of our talk. <laughs> yeah. The, the tongue in cheek way that I like to describe Ethereum is basically that it's central banking. Um, mm. like I, I think it is the, there are many as aspects of decentralization, right? So there's like the number of servers that, you know, are running these the software out in the world. Um, and that's kind of the most obvious one that people think a lot about, and it's important, but there's also social decentralization. And these other projects have, sometimes they have corporations and CEOs behind them. Like the project literally has an office and a leader and like a company that's making the decisions. Um, but at the very least, they all have an influential figurehead who like Vitalik Buterin, for example, is, you know, he's a brilliant guy and he's, you know, built Ethereum, seems like a well-intentioned enough guy, but even if he is of the purest heart and, and very capable, uh, that's a vulnerability socially, because if someone were to try to coerce him or any other influential person in Ethereum to change the rules to benefit them, uh, that's a lot more possible than it is with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. One of the, like Satoshi's anonymity is actually really important. So some people get turned away from Bitcoin. They think, how can you trust this thing if you don't even know who made it? But if you flip that around, it's, it's really powerful. It's like, 
you can't judge Bitcoin by going and looking at Satoshi's Facebook posts and history and political views. It, it forces the idea to stand on its own. Mm -hmm. And it ensures that no one can blackmail Satoshi or kidnap Satoshi's family and try to do horrible things to Satoshi to get him to print more Bitcoin, change the 21 million coin limit, change any of these rules of the system to benefit someone else. And so I think it's the most socially resilient um, of any of the projects out there. Yeah, let's just pretend for a minute that Craig Wright is actually Satoshi. And uh, <laughs> um, I mean, the, the community's response to him and just, you know, fighting back against any idea of changing uh, the fundamental rules, I think is a, is a really good uh, pointer to look at how decentralized this project is versus, uh, you know, if the Ethereum foundation, you know, we're watching it happen. They're completely rewriting everything with ETH 2.0. And, uh, you know, it's the security is and decentralization, I think. And, you know, a lot of people that ascribe to more of a Bitcoin maximalist uh, point of view will say that security and um, decentralization are way more important than scalability. Like without uh, those two things, um, you know, it, it's kind of worthless to scale it. And, you know, for the exact reasons that you just talked about, Stephen, for sure. So my, my take on Ethereum is that it's, it's a really intriguing, interesting experiment. Uh, I think that there's some smart people building really like fascinating stuff. And just as my, my mind just goes off on, on a, you know, a world computer and how that might work. Um, and the, 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 the problems I have with it are that it, it's, it's a you know, it's a copy of Bitcoin that's, that's then doing something else. Um, and then what is, is the thing that it's trying to do? Can it do it better? You know, so it's not trying to be a store of value. It's not trying to be money. It's trying, and the narrative's changed a couple of times. I don't, I'm not even sure where, where did the narrative is today, um, but it's trying to be something other than Bitcoin. Um, and so like in the short term, it's, it may be more volatile. They maybe have a, a discovery that could cause the price to, to go up. So in my opinion, if you're buying Ethereum, you're, you're, you're gambling. You're saying, I think that something cool might come out from this. Okay, great. Um, whereas I, I see Bitcoin as an investment and any other crypto, you, you know, you can go to Vegas and gamble and make money, you know, so you could, you could buy any of these other projects and you might, you might make a killing, you know, like you might predict something, you might catch them before they got added to a, a you know, exchange. Um, and I think some really cool things are going to come out of you know, these, you know, polka dot, that, that you know, interchange, you know, um, I followed Cosmos for a long time because it's just interesting. Like they're doing some really cool stuff, but it, it doesn't have the security of Bitcoin, like uh, the civil attacks that are possible on proof of stake. Um, to me, like the, the security is, is nowhere even close to Bitcoin because, for anything that's proof of stake. Um, so I don't know how you, you know, Time will only tell, and game theory will prove out like if if proof of safe chain can actually be um, you know secure. Yeah, for sure.
And, and one yeah. more little note that I'll add just to, I'm going to optimize this to try to trigger ETH people. Um, <laughs> is, <laughs> is, um, is that the way that I see it, like Ethereum has pretty clearly failed because they are moving to this new coin called ETH2. Um, I don't think very many people appreciate the, the nuance of like hard forks versus soft forks when it comes to upgrades. Like if you spin up a version of the Bitcoin software from back in 2013, it'll like sync with the network and it'll work and you can do stuff with it. And uh, that, as you mentioned a little bit ago, like there is this new protocol that is being released now, being launched called ETH2, right? And it's being framed as like, we're upgrading ETH. You know, we've had ETH and now we're going to ETH2. Uh, but the way I see it, like ETH1 is, or like ETH is not working. And therefore they are trying and hoping to convince people to move to this completely different project that happens to also have the word Ethereum in the name and a lot of the same developers working on it, but it is not a backwards compatible protocol. Um, it's convincing people to move to a different coin. So I think they're just trying to, um, and it, it seems to me, I, I've become more skeptical over time as I've seen the can get kicked down the road on a lot of stuff that the Ethereum community claims they're going to do, problems they're going to solve. So, so yeah, there's my uh, tongue-in-cheek jab at Ethereum. <laughs> yeah, uh, Michael Rexto, I'd say a good use case for buying ETH is if you're messing around with some project like uh, OXT and are trying to work on running a decentralized VPN and you actually need to buy ETH as for gas, um, but uh, it's not money is what I'll say on that. It's, it's, it's not. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. Like I, there's some projects that I do really enjoy, um, like brave browsers, my default browser and has been for a while. And I, I love, uh, earning, um, on it and, uh, giving to different content creators and, you know, they have a cool feature where you can learn, earn the basic attention token. And I just, automatically convert it to, to Bitcoin. Um, um, but I, you know, I think it's, it's really, I don't really know a whole lot about why they would want to use an altcoin other than uh, to fundraise for their project, um, which, you know, makes sense. Um, but I would, I would never go out and buy basic attention token um, because I don't really see the importance of it. Like, if, you know, if I really want to support the content creators that I really enjoy, I send them Bitcoin, you know, and most of the really good ones, they'll, they'll run a BTC pay server or, you know, whatever other ones that they have. Sphinx app has a new widget that you can use. Um, uh, the guys over at uh, WTF happened in 1971. They've got one that's different. That that's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it's, yeah, that's, that's my thoughts. I don't want to focus on it too much, but yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that was really wild uh, to me about this whole XRP thing is that one, um, to uh, run a node, you need uh, nine terabytes worth of data for the blockchain. And then two, like there's a good chunk of it from the very beginning that's missing, you know, and it's, it's really interesting running, you know, my node over here. Um, do any of you guys, are any of you guys running uh, an umbral node? 
I started tinkering with that this week. Yeah. Yeah. Although I haven't updated, it looks like they um, just did a badass update and yeah. added like an app store and all that kind of stuff. And I haven't been hands-on with that yet. Yeah. I'm super stoked about it because they, um, you can uh, run a BTC pay server on it now. And I, I got the new raspberry. I was running on a three. I'm so bad at these things. It takes me forever to figure it out. And it's a major headache, but I enjoy it to some degree, but it's running it on a three and it's not powerful enough to run the new update. So I've got my four that I'm trying to get working eventually, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I've got a terabyte hard drive, which, you know, you can buy them pretty inexpensively on Amazon and a Raspberry Pi that's no less than $100. And, uh, you know, you just download it off the blockchain off of GitHub and, you know, anybody can run it anywhere in the world. And that's super cool. And, you know, I, I was hearing that, you know, to get a full copy of the uh, XRP blockchain, you actually had to get this terabyte sent to you preloaded from ripple and <laughs> it's just so crazy and um but yeah i mean i i think there's a lot of uh i was trying to talk freddie into running a node we'll get him there eventually um because it's pretty pretty amazing to be your own bank like a hundred percent to have your mobile wallets connected to your node and you know all of these different things but um do i get like a certificate or like a sign like i am a bank I'll make you a t-shirt. Yeah, I'm my own bank. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am my I'll get own you a bank. sticker. A sticker. Exactly. A sticker, yeah. a t-shirt, and a mug. Yeah, be bank. That is a cool, like it might be cool too to kind of go over just at a high level, like that progression, you know, like how running a node kind of fits into the journey of like becoming a Bitcoiner or being more self-sovereign, so to speak. Because um, there sort of is that typical path that people walk, right? Where like step one is buy Bitcoin and you can sort of like give your money to a company like Swan and they will buy Bitcoin on your behalf, but then they're storing it for you. And then, and that's a good, like that's, you know, step in the right direction. You've got kind of like a, like an IOU for Bitcoin effectively, but then to actually really take control of those Bitcoin yourself and store them yourself, you like withdraw them from the exchange and transfer them to a wallet that you control. Um, and there's this mantra in the Bitcoin community that you'll probably hear, not your keys, not your coins. And every time that you see one of these big exchanges get hacked, um, which happens often, uh, then you'll just see a lot of people use that as the refrain. It's like a reminder of not your keys, not your coins. If you trust some big company to store your Bitcoin, then if they lose them, they're gone. Um, so, and then beyond that, like step number three, after controlling your own keys, is probably you know running a node and making sure that a system that you control uh, is participating in the Bitcoin network and verifying that you are not being lied to <laughs> by the rest of the systems. So yeah, there's a there's an arc to it. But I think it's funny because out of all of those, the hardest part is probably just getting over that mental barrier to like buy your first little bit of Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah it took me years like uh, uh i shared this with alex uh you know previous conversations of you know when bitcoin was just like you know a, a dollar bitcoin or something like that you know it's just, and then like, i had a friend i had a friend or uh uh that you know just believed it you know for whatever reason and then you know of course i'm just like 
bro, what's this? I don't even know. I, don't, I could barely even turn on my laptop, you know? And and, and, was, and then he believed it so much that he was like, oh, I'll, I'll just give you 10 Bitcoin right now. And I, and I was just like, I was like, well, what am I going to do with it? You can't really physically, you know, what are you going to do? Just put it in a flash drive? I don't even know how to understand it, you know? And then he's like, all right, well, you know, like eventually it'll be good. I'm like, all right. And then eight years later, you know, <laughs> and then I'm just like, well, you know, there, there it goes, you know, but at, at the same time, it's just like, um, now I think it's a little bit easier for, uh, you know, for people to kind of get through that hump, right? You know, it doesn't have to t- take eight years because, uh, well, you know, the number goes up, right? And so <laughs> it, it's just, it's just now um, convincing people or just educating people I and mean, what's the process of that, right? And, and with every generation too, it's different, right? You know, uh, it, it is it is a technology, so you do have to show people how to even, uh, uh, um, you know, purchase Bitcoin. Like you had to go download something, and have or you had to understand that. And it's just like sometimes people first need to get some, you know, uh, basic computer, you know, knowledge. And and then and then so it's sort of like, well, you know, uh, is the younger generation since you know it, it kind of have that kind of uh, stereotype like, oh, well, younger generation could kind of uh, learn technology a little quicker. It's like, are they is eventually are they the ones you know driving the uh, the importance of Bitcoin, or you know, is there a way that it doesn't really matter you know where you're at? You could just get into Bitcoin and you know uh, understand it you know uh, fairly quickly. Well, and to Stephen's point at the, the beginning of this, that like 2020, I feel like has been a, a bit of a boon for for crypto, not just because of the the happening that happened. But because of the the uncertainty and kind of the chaos that's been happening this year, and like, I, I think the the zeitgeist uh, across you know our country is a little bit of losing faith in, in the government, and so that's you know when uh, I just saw lots of people like March, April, May that around people like kind of despairing, like, oh my gosh, like what what would happen if our government collapsed or what would happen if we didn't get the stimulus payment, you know, just all these different things. And and Bitcoin gave me hope around like that there's an alternative, you know, that there's something else that like that there's a better way and there's systems in place that don't rely on trusted third parties, be the government being that trusted third party or that, that like, um, you know, I, I think about this concept of uh, it's um, the, the tragedy of the commons. And so like trusted third parties, so like governments or city municipalities, like why do they exist? And they exist to like provide services for us that businesses can't step into and do. So like, like roads, like could you really have private roads everywhere? Well, I think a future might come about where we do have private roads and where you pay like a few Satoshi to, to go on the road, right? I mean, it's like fractions of a penny and, and that world couldn't exist under Visa and MasterCard where it's 35 cents every transaction. But with crypto, that starts to solve that problem. And, and so now all of a sudden we can start to have a world that maybe has a smaller governments, smaller municipalities and fewer and fewer trusted third parties that are that are really in control of 
you know, the roads. Like, what if we had neighborhood associations that could all say, "Here's the road. We're gonna we're gonna make a nicer road, but but we're gonna charge you ten satoshi, not five satoshi, to to drive on it. You know, whatever. Like, you're gonna find these interesting market dynamics and and places that that are able to provide um, where, you know, as governments, de you know, my belief is that governments are going to decrease. As we see that, I think we will see like private institutions and private companies step up and do cool stuff, you know? And mm -hmm. so, you know, it, it's not that my hope is in Bitcoin. It's my hope is in people being empowered to not have to rely on these large institutions where they can feel empowered to just go and, and take action where their incentives are aligned, you know, where it makes sense, you know, to, to have a neighborhood association build their own road and then to reap the benefits of that and then to keep maintaining and updating it and fix potholes and all those things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, one of the things that really blew my mind was uh, Adam Curry going around and talking about on all the different podcasts about Sphinx app and, and how you can, uh, uh, stream these podcasts and listeners can pay for them with a couple Satoshis. So, I mean, we're already seeing the implementation of it. I can't figure out how to get mine working. Um, and I think it might be because my host is RSS feed is, uh, all funky and weird. Um, but, uh, it's just one of the pains of running beta, anything. Steven and I were talking back and forth about trying to get it working on our laptops. Um, but uh finally i fight i got that figured out and uh but whatever um but yeah i mean it's, it's pretty pretty interesting to to look at it and i think uh i mean 2020 i i wish i'd heard read murray rothbard uh before this year um but uh you know i got so fed up okay, with that, the uh what's that uh, uh, is it a blog or, or oh, um, yeah, he's, he's an author and economist. Um, he, uh, wrote a bunch of famous stuff. Um, like, uh, the, the one that I specifically was reading this year is anatomy of the state. And, uh, he's kind of one of the American fathers of libertarianism. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, he's a, there you go. That's got the some one. good Murray Rothbard stuff here. Yeah. Um, such a anatomy good of state is great and it's so like that is a tiny book it is an easy read yeah that's okay. like by far the best intro to him and then i'll tell you one thing if so one of his other great books is what has government done to our money and then there's mm. for a new liberty but i'll tell you one pro tip that i learned the hard way is uh if you think it's hard to look cool being in a coffee shop reading murray rothbard you can go an extra step and accidentally order the large print editions and then it'll like be extra ridiculous looking but <laughs> some like out in you know at coffee shops like flipping through these like the print is huge on these but uh that's how i've been reading my rothbard lately <laughs> and i had i had alex fetsky on the podcast and and one of the things that he talked about was that anarcho-capitalism wasn't really ever possible before bitcoin um, and I, I think that's a great point that you brought up, Chris, in that regard is, um, I mean, the, the possibilities of what we can do are pretty, pretty amazing. And it's, it's going to be an interesting battle getting to that point, um, for sure. I mean, politically, I've always been kind of frustrated and disappointed in the political system. I mean, there's, 
my whole lifetime, we've been at war with all these different countries that um, I, I personally don't believe we really have a lot of justification to be at war with. And you know, there's really nothing I can do about it. And I watch my taxes uh, just get flushed down the drain, you know, for um, it felt, it, you know, t- to be honest, it, it felt pretty terrible funding uh, Steve Mnuchin's uh, honeymoon jet flight. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, great allocators of, uh, of money right there. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just cool to, to, to see that being a possibility of like really feeling hope. And, and, and it almost seems like an inevitability because you know, Bitcoin has this like gravitational pull that is just sucking everything into it and will eventually lead in that direction. I just, I really have trouble seeing large government existing with sound money, like in the same way that we see now. Um, and I mean, I, I had some, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, Truth and Accounting, but they, they're a think tank in Chicago that audits local governments. And if you go and look at um, Tucson, it's pretty wild. I was, I was trying to read their financial 2019 financial report and it's just like 80 pages long or something of just a bunch of nonsense. And they say they have it balanced and all these things, but they don't add in there into the financial reports, all the unfunded pensions that they have, you know, which is a major expense. And so we're actually operating in the negative by like, like half, like half, like half of our expenses in the city are not funded and um, every year. And so like, you know, there's, there's no accountability to taxpayers when it comes down to it, when they can just print money and and tax us that way. Um, And these local governments are able to expand um, by borrowing and it's, it's pretty crazy. So, yeah, I mean, it's just like, if it, I, I feel like Bitcoin you know, there's a lot of gold bugs out there. I think we should talk about some gold bugs here in a minute, but I mean, there's a lot of gold bugs out there um, that, you know, agree with like 99% of what Bitcoiners agree with, but it, it just seems like they're um, not like bringing a whole lot of solution to the table of anything that's practically going to change anything. It's just like, we're going to point at the ceiling and say there's a leak in it and it's going to collapse, but you know, we're not going to fix the ceiling. Um, but yeah, that was a weird tangent, but yeah. What do you going off yeah. of that? You guys have any thoughts? I, I was a big gold bug before Bitcoin. I think I was, you know, I was worried about uh, fiscal irresponsibility of governments and the potential for things to get nasty with fiat money. Um, and I kind of saw gold as like the best hedge and safe haven asset against that. However, I was also kind of skeptical and a little bit crustfallen because I, you know, I saw like in 1933, they, the government very clearly demonstrated that it can control gold. Um, they, that was the year that FDR issued executive order 6102 and said, uh, private citizens are no longer allowed to own gold. And if you have any, then you have to give it to the government and here's how many dollars we give you for it. And it's like, there's no negotiating that rate. We're just going to give you this amount of dollars. And if we find out you didn't comply, then you're going to have a really bad time. And so everybody had to comply and like governments, uh, especially in the nation state paradigm, are really good with 
physical violence. Like I know that sounds like a very pessimistic way to frame things, but um, but they are. And so they, even though gold might have some attributes that make it stronger money than dollars, governments were able to use violence to force people to continue using dollars. And, uh, and I think that that, um, so, so that's where like Bitcoin gave me hope, I guess, is the attributes of Bitcoin, the fact that not only can they, you know, not print more in the same way that they really can't print more gold, but they also cannot seize it as easily made me especially excited about Bitcoin. Um, it's a lot easier to prevent people from walking around with gold coins and like paying for stuff at stores with them <laughs> that like you can send agents of whatever organization you want around and like verify that that's not happening pretty quickly. But it's really hard to tell who is holding Bitcoin um, because you can hold Bitcoin in your brain or on a bookmark or on a piece of paper, you know, inside of a book somewhere and you can cross borders with it. And so it's to, it, it is certainly possible for uh, governments, intelligence agencies, what have you, to find certain Bitcoiners and make examples of them, you know, maybe, and uh, they can stop Bitcoiners individually, but they can't really stop Bitcoin. And I think the fact that it makes it impractical for governments to seize Bitcoin at large scale in mass quantities really makes it possible that Bitcoin could win this free market battle over the dollar. Um, because they simply, even if governments did not want it to happen, even if they actively tried to fight against it happening, hopefully they don't. Hopefully it's embraced and it's this nice peaceful upgrade and we all like hold hands and go to a better future. <laughs> but, uh, but even if they fight against it with all of their might and all of their you know guns and tanks and whatever, I think that they can slow it down, but they can't stop it. Yeah. I, one crazy thing that I saw recently is that Canada's removing uh, legal ten the word legal tender off of uh, certain uh, bills that they're issuing. Um, and uh, yeah, I think we're going to see an inevitable move to the central bank digital currencies, but which, I mean, so Freddie, like, you know, one of the reasons to self-custody is um, to really fight against the ability of, of a government or anybody to, to be able to seize it from you um, through force. And uh, yeah, I mean, going off of what you're talking about, I mean, coercion is something that is like really, you know, we don't really think a whole lot about it. I mean, I don't think with as ridiculously as our government treats our money and, and treats our taxes um, that a lot of us would pay taxes willingly if we had an option not to. Um, and, you know, the real reason why they do is because they, you know, can just take the money out of our bank accounts or, um, you know, seize our property or throw us in jail, um, which is a hilarious concept if you think about it, you know, you don't pay taxes and then you get put in jail funded by taxpayer dollars but um uh but yeah it, it is really interesting and, I, and that's one of the things i love about murray rothbard you know is he really breaks it down really really well um into very simple terms you know and he and another one that i've been reading uh is the constitution of liberty by friedrich hayek and um 
it's that's one of the beautiful things about Bitcoin is it it forces to forces us to break things down to first principles and to really consider it um, these arguments at their their core of where they begin instead of building off of assumptions um, of money is just you know what buys me whatever at the grocery store or you know um, taxes or something that we have to do for the good of society or you know laws need to be followed because you know it's the proper right thing to do even if they're terrible um, and hurt people so um, yeah what do you think about that freddie uh well yeah it's it's uh it's definitely that you know again it's it's i still see like okay money to go buy stuff right i think that's kind of like the initial conversation of everything right just getting that that just the idea of money right and and also uh, i don't do i really know what money really is you know (laughs) and how how it works um but it, it is it is a kind of interesting thing because it's just like you know just like you know just talking to my dad about um you know uh you know he, he he's in the, the generation of like okay he was able to buy a house and he owns it and he pays it off whatever but then you know of course you know he pushing me to uh in a way uh to move to that direction right like you know it could be if you know if you rent forever you're not really investing into anything right but but then you know now just thinking about it it's like well you know do you ever really own your house you know <laughs> do, you, yeah. do you ever really own you know the money that you have so then it's sort of like then what's what's really you know so with that concept in mind which is obviously pushed in, onto me and also many others right you know it's just sort of uh you know it's it's a very it's more of a philosoph- uh, philosophical kind of education that that needs to uh, that needs to be kind of uh, said to others then okay what is actually the nitty gritty of a bitcoin i think i think i think that i think that's a better route uh, um you know to kind of get to uh, you know for myself and probably others is teach them the, the philosophicalness of it or the main idea opposed of okay you know how do you actually get bitcoin that might be step two you know and maybe the philosophical they may take some time but once you get that then i think the other steps will just kind of come naturally because then either, you know, like myself, you know, I'm, I'm going to, after this, yeah, I'm definitely going to do a little more research, you know, and then it'll be like, because I'm, you know, a little more jazzed up, you know, but it is, it's the philosophical thing that needs to be actually uh, taught, you know, um, first and then, you know, talked about and still, I, you know, I start to mull over a little bit of this, you know, but yeah, yeah. Well, one way that I think is interesting to frame Bitcoin that I'd I'd be interested to hear your uh, all your thoughts on um, is that Bitcoin is a defensive technology, and that Bitcoin enables us to enables people to better defend the value that they create in the world. Um, so if you go out there and you create value, you do useful stuff, you go to a job, whatever it is, start a company, um, you know you'll you'll get compensated for that. And there's a variety of ways that you can try to store and protect that value. You can like buy dollars and stash them physically under a mattress. You can trust a bank to to store your dollars for you. 
you can have bars of gold, you could buy stocks. Um, you, but in every one of those cases there, like if you have stocks, you know, then maybe a criminal can't kick down your door and take them, but a bank can very easily reach into your account and take them or a regulator can kind of take them away from you. Um, and if you have stuff under the mattress, then maybe a regulator can't as easily take it from you, but you know, a criminal could kick down your door and take it from you. And I think finally with Bitcoin, it, with Bitcoin that are thoughtfully secured, it makes it easier to defend that value that you've created in the world than any other uh, means of protecting value that there is. Um, you know, it's it's defensible from if you like, you can get fancy with it. You could stash the keys to your Bitcoin in multiple places, like like lock boxes around the country, around the world. Um, and maybe you, you know, you need to get multiple of those keys at the same time in order to do a spend. And so uh, in those scenarios, you can make it resilient to attacks from home invaders. You can make it resilient to attacks from say regulators or banks or even nations. And that gets really interesting. Yeah, yeah, and, and and that's that sounds awesome, <laughs> but it's just then it's the it's the it's the okay, uh, you know, um, okay. Now I need to learn how to even you know manage Google Chrome, right? You know, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, it, it seems it's like, like an intimidating like, learning curve. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and then like of course, of course, it's just like I, I think I think that's I think that's why it seems really more appealing or how, you know, or, or how we got into like letting our money be, or letting others be responsible. Because also, I guess, again, you know, it, we, we tend to not want to be totally accountable because it's this kind of, uh, uh, I guess, uh, insurance that if somebody loses it, then we could blame them. And then they are forced to give me back my money. But then, but really, no. They don't have to do anything. <laughs> you know, Definitely. And then, so we don't want to uh, uh, have our own stuff because then if we lose it or we if something gets damaged, it's just like, oh my God, I messed up. And we don't want to face the fact that I messed up. It's the, uh, the, sp the Spider-Man problem. With great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. Well, and you have that, the, that same trade-off with gold because most people don't ever take custody of gold right so they're they're trusting a, a third party you know their bank or the stock market or you know whoever that that third party is to to hold the gold on their account um and so i think of like the question like like what is bitcoin right or what what are dollars what what is gold right so, and then you're really just starting to think about like, what are the properties of money, right? That it's, uh, it's easily divisible, um, that it's um, like uh, one bar of gold is indistinguishable from another bar of gold. Um, but then, you know, so Bitcoin is, is hard to understand until I, I heard somebody else say, Bitcoin is energy stored digitally. Uh, and so like proof of work trades energy to create Bitcoin. And because enough people have all traded energy to create a Bitcoin, they're all willing to, to trade other things for Bitcoin. And so then it becomes this easily divisible, um, easily fungible. So like you don't care which Bitcoin you have. Um, and, and so to me, that's been something that, that like, so what is Bitcoin? 
it really just becomes, oh, it's, it's just power that's stored digitally, that somebody traded a whole bunch of power to create this. And so they locked in value when they did that. And now I can access that value to give it to other people, you know, just, just like I wouldn't, you know, and I don't need the energy delivered to me at any, you know, I, just like I didn't need the gold, I just trade the contract, you know? So that was an interesting analogy for me. Yeah, and I think the the difficulty that we're that you're talking about, the learning curve that you're talking about is gonna um, lessen more and more the longer it's around and, and the more energy goes into it. And that's that's why I'm pretty passionate about um, uh, trying to give exposure to companies that I really believe in, like Swan Bitcoin, you know, where they are an education first company and they really are built on principles, not like Coinbase, where they'll just, you know, list a million tokens and uh, um, try and they do all sorts of sketchy stuff. I won't get into it, but like, I, I feel bad. Like when I first started out, I would point a lot of people to Coinbase just because I didn't really know a whole lot, but it, it, it's, mm-hmm. I think it's, um, yeah, it's exciting to see what these different companies and projects are, are really doing. And it's going to be exciting. I mean, one of the things that I am so bullish on is that uh, Kraken's going to start. I don't. I'm not on Kraken, but I, th- I think this is going to really start um, moving things in a positive direction. Is that Kraken's going to start supporting Lightning, um, so that you can pull it off of uh, there. And you know, that's just a net. Like the Lightning network's kind of difficult to work on right now. I've got my umbral node hooked up to, you know, a wallet and I, you know, do lightning stuff here and there with um, Sphinx app and, you know, fold and whatever else. But um, it, we're just going to see that grow uh, more accessible. And um, I mean, with as easy as it is to send, uh, uh, to buy the Bitcoin on the cash app and then to, you know, send it to your wallet, I think we're going to just see it grow more like you know chris was talking about uh before we started uh going live about like what bitcoin was like in the early days to get involved in it i had jimmy song on and he just blew my mind you know you have to like wire transfer this money here to buy like this to send to some exchange in japan you know and that's what it was like in 2011 or 2013 and um you know me getting it in 2018 it's incredibly easy to buy on coinbase or you know the other ones and it's just gonna grow more accessible um but yeah no the the learning curve is is real and uh, i've wasted so much time trying to run nodes on my raspberry Pis, and you know to see companies like umbrell come around where you just literally flash an os onto it plug in a hard drive and it's pretty much good to go is is pretty incredible to me um yeah it gets a little more user friendly every day and like uh an analogy that's far from perfect but maybe decent is just like the early days of the internet right where um at first email like if you were one of the first few people in the world to ever send email it was a very unfriendly experience and then you know this is just i wasn't quite around for this but like from from history it's you know, you were using a command line and you're using these protocols like SMTP and POP3 and you're like typing these really arcane commands. You needed a lot of like computer mastery 
to be able to like send one of the first emails to have ever been sent. And now, you know, my mom like has a Gmail account and she like has email on her phone and it's just, you don't need any wizardry to do it. It's just so user-friendly because for many years, entrepreneurs and engineers have been just making that user experience more and more friendly, building more and more layers on top of all of that nastiness of, of the raw protocol. Um, and so I think we're going to see the same thing with Bitcoin. I think it's, and we already have, and, you know, hopefully we continue to. So kind of wrapping up, what, what are, what are you guys most bullish about in uh, going into 2021? And maybe also to add in at, at the end, uh, what, what about 2020 has been the, the most bullish thing for you? Um, I can take a first swing. I mean, I think mine are very connected as far as like what I'm most bullish about in 2021 and the most bullish thing I observed in 2020 so far. I, uh, I think for me, it really is the micro strategy thing. Um, I know that's, it's probably top of mind. It's pretty common probably for, for Bitcoiners to mention that, but that happened so much sooner than I thought that it would. And to see corporations by like publicly traded US corporations buy Bitcoin because, and to see them articulate the reasons behind it as protecting the company's value, I just think that is so huge. And then the fact that they, you know, the mechanics through which they did it, right? Like the first buy was just them buying with the cash that they already had. And that's one thing. And that already like blew my mind. But then when they issued corporate debt and like bonds to essentially buy more, I mean, in a way that is like creating dollars, like creating the weak money to buy the strong money. Bitcoin gets more valuable, dollar gets weaker. And as other companies see how rich MicroStrategy is, I think that tactic will, I think there will be a rush, a stampede for corporations and CFOs like, you know, why aren't you like, why don't we have Bitcoin CFO? Like, why aren't we doing this? What, what, what is this? Uh, so corporate adoption of Bitcoin happened much sooner than I thought in 2020. And I'm optimistic that that will be a huge trend we'll continue to see in 2021 and eventually central banks too. Agreed. Uh, that, was, that was a great example. So uh, I don't know if Mike can top it or not. No. Uh, <laughs> I think um, so. If if yours was institutions, I think mine is is the consumer side. Um, I'm excited to see like the the fold card, you know, where people can can get cash, can get uh, crypto back. I know like Crypto.com and like uh, Nexio, like all had uh, programs. I think like BlockFi had one also where you know you've got a, a debit card. Um, but I think folds is the first one where it's like linked to your bank account where like you, you're not having to sell crypto, you know, like, so crypto.com, you had to like deposit fiat and then it would take that, you know, so it was like a separate bank account, whereas Fold, it seems like it's just well, really well integrated. Um, and so I think that's where like, we're going to see this a lot greater user adoption where people are just like, well, it makes sense. Like I think Nexio, uh, if you deposit Bitcoin, so it's custodial, but you can get like 5.9% uh, 
by just depositing your Bitcoin and just leaving it on an exchange. Now, you know, I prefer self-custody, but like for the average Joe, like if you look at a savings account that's earning like 0.1% or whatever they are, they earn, if you just take that, put it in Bitcoin, so Bitcoin's going up, but then you also get the interest on top of that. Um, so I, I think just for individuals and for, you know, the consumer side of it, I'm excited to see more and more companies making it really accessible for individuals um, to, you know, maybe they're not going to try and put their 401k in it. Maybe that, you know, maybe they just want to put $10 a month, you know, like Swan Bitcoin. Um, it, those services are going to make it more and more mainstream where people hear about Bitcoin. They, they're not quite sure about it, but they can, they can get a fold card and just start earning it. Um, and then when they see it, when they're living it, when they see the number going up in their little account, that's when they're going to be like, oh my gosh, like this thing's awesome. I should, I should, you know, put five, 10, 20%, you know, in my retirement into that. So. Definitely. And I'll just do a quick plus one to fold. Like I love what the fold team is doing. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they're pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, for me, uh, it's just more of the education of just self-education about learning even more of it. Like, uh, you know, uh, I guess just starting from even from the summer, I guess, you know, Alex and I have been kind of just talking a lot more and now just me uh, just uh, getting a little more involved and, you know, uh, and also just being able to talk about it a little bit more with others and getting them kind of interested is just like, that's why I'm kind of looking forward in 2021, just to be a little bit more educated <laughs> to also get, also to just, you know, get others as, as, as well to kind of, um, you know, be interested in it, you know, uh, I'm not going to like, you know, preach their ears out, but, you know, at least get them interested in it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. 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 Micro strategy is pretty huge. I, I think mine are a little bit, uh, I mean, there's been just so many bullish things that have happened. It's It's been unbelievable. Like I, I got in like at the start of this last bear market in 2018 and followed the price all the way down to 3000 and all the way up to 14,000, then all the way down to 3000. And, you know, the price is exciting. Um, uh, you know, there's just so many aspects of it. Um, I think one thing I'm really excited about is we have our first uh, Bitcoin Congress person in Kelly Lummis, and uh, that's pretty awesome. Um, she went to war with, with Scummy Steve and uh, over that uh, whole custody um, proposal that he had. Um, we'll see if that happens. Um, but uh, um, yeah, probably the most exciting thing for me is just like I talked about it earlier where I just um, had my mind completely blown was Adam Curry going around to all the podcasts. I mean, the pod father himself um, really, <laughs> really getting people um, around. The, oh, okay. I got it. I don't know. I've got so many, but here, here's one that is also really exciting. Tim pool um, on his chat, this guy, uh, streams to like hundreds of thousands of people, you know, has been talking about Bitcoin pretty consistently. And he's not like a, a Bitcoiner, um, to say the least. Um, but he's just kind of like a normal dude 
getting out there with, you know, a huge platform. And I, I think we're seeing a lot more of that of just like um, people coming out of the woodwork that, you know, will be converted who already have a large sphere of influence. So, um, but yeah. And like Russell Okung too. Um, yeah. That, that headline this week where he's, you know, an NFL linebacker for the Panthers and half of his $13 million salary is getting paid this year in Bitcoin. And so I think as each sector experiences that, you know, um, it'll do NBA players, NFL players, sports, esports, um, radio movies, whatever it is, every domain, some, there will kind of be this high profile first adopter. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. It's really exciting time to be into Bitcoin. And I, I, I just have to throw it out there. I'm really grateful for everybody that put in the work before I came in to make it possible to do the things that I'm doing. I am not an OG at all. Um, and I get to reap the benefits of some people that really, you know, sat and did the really hard work to make it easily accessible to me um, and others. And hopefully, you know, this podcast can make it more accessible to to more people too so and who knows maybe in the grand scheme of things we're all ogs <laughs> still early <laughs> oh we're so early yep get to tell our grandkids got into it in the before 2020 <laughs> back in the days when people were willing to take dollars for bitcoin yeah <laughs> yeah i'm gonna wrap up the any of you guys have any closing comments before i wrap up the live stream uh, nothing for me. Happy New Year. Grateful for Bitcoiners. And yeah. thanks for having this discussion. It's awesome. Appreciate it. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. I, I learned a lot. So thanks. I think uh, my thing, you know, Freddie, what you talked about, like just we all started at zero, you know, that nobody's been in Bitcoin for 15 years, you know. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I, I think. And for anybody listening to this and watching this, like, you know, do your own research and just dive in, start somewhere, you know, like there's tons of great resources out there and, um, you know, just keep, keep plugging away as much as you're interested in, find the thing, you know, like Freddie, you're a musician, like there's, there's cool projects, you know, around crypto and, and music, you know, and, and digital rights and, you know, publishing rights for artists, you know, not that I'm, not that I think you should like buy into the project, but just like, this is what's possible when crypto like empowers individuals to, to get rid of like all of the intermediaries, you know? So uh, I'm, I'm excited to see that roll out across every industry, you know, and, and to, to see it empower people to, um, you know, get paid directly for the work that they're doing, you know? So I think it'd be cool. Mm -hmm. Onward and upward. Yep. Well, this is fun. I'm going to end it. All right. And that wraps up our two-part series of Bitcoin 2020 in review with Stephen Cole, Chris Porter, and Freddie Vasquez. It was a lot of fun, and I, I'm really excited going forward into 2021 
the price has already uh, mooned at the time of me recording this. It is above $33,000. It hit 34000 I don't know uh, when this gets put up, what it's going to be at, but it's just looking so bullish right now. Um, I'm so excited. So, yeah, I'm uh, working on some projects on... Uh, uh, behind the scenes that uh, I'll keep you posted on but one of the things that I will talk about and am excited about is I will be launching a Bitcoin meetup here in Tucson at some point this year so if you're interested shoot me an email let me know I'll uh, keep you posted on when that's coming um, I'm also going to be trying to do some more live streams on uh, YouTube and Twitter uh, I'm going to have one coming up a little bit later today with uh, Katie, the Russian, at uh, 2 p.m. Uh, Mountain Standard Time. So if you want to check that out, feel free to tune in. I'll get to your questions if you post them in the chat. But yeah, um, really excited about this past year and as far as developments with Bitcoin and a lot of other areas. Not as excited as I'm sure pretty much everybody isn't, but yeah um going into this year bitcoin is going to have a huge year and it's going to be really exciting so yeah be ready have a good one